This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I am an agribusiness recruiter. So if you know anyone who is looking to hire or be hired in the business of agriculture, ag tech, or agribusiness, I'd love to talk to you. Send me an email anytime, tim at aggrad.com. Well, I believe to really understand what's happening today in ag tech, which I think most people would agree is having an impact on the overall agriculture industry um, in what's going on right now and what the future probably looks like. In order to understand all that, it's important not only to get the perspective from people starting and growing ag tech companies, but I think it's extremely important to get the perspective of the investors that are funding this. Uh, none of the recent boom, I'm, I'm using air quotes since you can't see me, boom in ag tech could be possible without the millions of dollars, billions of dollars of investment that has been flowing into ag tech. So the question is why? You know, from an investor's perspective, somebody who didn't come from the industry, what are they looking at? What are they seeing that is piquing their interest, that's causing them to want to invest in these types of companies. And certainly, uh, we have a guest on the show here today who has been a part of some large investments made into ag tech and into uh, disruptive type companies in agriculture. We have on the show Steve Saracino. He founded Activant Capital in 2012 uh, and is a partner on the investment team. He's a long track record of investing in disruptive technology companies and has extensive experience as a board director in high growth B2B platform businesses. Uh, Steve places a particular emphasis on data-heavy businesses that can act as the source of truth for large industries. As Activant's founder, he sees the importance of investing in outstanding people, both founders and in the Activant team. Obviously, I'm reading that bio from their website, but uh, Steve was an investor in companies such as Indigo and Benson Hill, two companies that you might recognize, um, and has definitely had a keen interest in recent years on ag tech and in ag tech maybe is the proper way of saying that. Anyway, very, very happy to have Steve on the show. And I found this a fascinating interview into uh, sort of the understanding the perspective of the ag tech investor. I hope you enjoy. Uh, we just launched right into this conversation. I'm going to drop you right in at the beginning. Steve started talking and I, and I said, okay, well, let's, uh, let's, let's just start rolling. So uh, here is my interview with Steve Saracino of Activate Capital. So in terms of just lack of clarity, you have on the input side, these mega mergers, right? So we're down to, to four groups um, that control 75% of the inputs. Then on the, um, on the other end of the spectrum, in terms of who controls the, the output, um, you have mergers there as well. And uh, they control, you know, call it between ADM, Bungie, Cargill, right? Um, probably about the same percentage of the market as the input providers. And so we've had this expectation of technology driving change, not only on the farm, but throughout the supply chain. And we haven't really seen it to come, come to fruition. So if you look at Climacorp, the, the, the tech company that Monsanto bought, uh, I mean, that, um, you know, categorizing it as a disaster is probably a little extreme, but has not come to fruition for them. And you look at Granular and Blue River, which were bought by DuPont and um, John Deere, respectively, you know, big question marks on whether that's going to provide any value. And so 
a lot of the tech has been invested around the farm and the expectation was that the farmer was going to re regain the ability to charge economic rent because that's where if there was an article in um, the journal in January of, uh, of this of last year that farmer profitability has never been lower. There was an article um, in March uh, in CBS that um, farmer suicides never been higher. And so, you know, as a community and as a tech community, we've been very focused on driving profitability at the farm level. And if you look at the industry dynamics, it's it's tough. Uh, they just there's very little power. Uh, they're price takers, and the way that the industry's been set up with the grain elevators and the grain traders is that uh, you know if they're going to play by the old rules, they're just uh, they're going to be they're going to continue to be exploited. And the funniest part, or I guess it's not funny, but the sad part is that. If you look at the technologies that have been um, introduced, is most of them also are trying to take economic rent from the farm. Mm. So very few are actually partnering with, and or you know charging a percent of yield gain or some sort of metric in which um, it will improve generally farmer profitability. Most have been just flat, you know, SaaS or recurring charges. We call it SaaS in our business. So software as a service or some sort of recurring charge. And, you know, we, I don't know what's going to happen because without disrupting either the major, you know, on the input side or the output side, you don't see um, farmers being able to break out of this with the one exception, if the best farmers, so the ones that can drive the most yield or use that land most profitably actually can invest in technology and start consolidation. You know, the average farm in the U S is 400 acres In places like India, it's oh, I think 10 times smaller than that or even smaller and, uh, you know, where you have more successes in South America, where the government's forced consolidation, both in Brazil and Argentina. And so in the U.S., the, the, the top farmers, for them to be able to drive economic rent for themselves, are going to need to consolidate. And then you're going to need new systems like certification, crop certification, or things that can actually certify what is an, what is an organic and push that all the way to the consumer and then hope that the consumer actually pulls or demands um, to know what is you know, they're putting in their body. And in the US, we have a unique issue is that we're so productive and so efficient that our supply chain is very, very long. And the question when you see organic on a label, you know, whether it really is organic, they're really, it's, it's all self-reporting right now. And, um, and so you have all of this going on at, at, at once. And the advent of, you know, super technologies like IoT, Internet of Things, collecting data on the farm and building data supply chains we, and, and then applying machine learning. People call it AI or um, uh, artificial intelligence, which doesn't, that's another topic, doesn't really exist. It's really machine learning and um, TensorFlow models and, and things of that nature. And so who is going to benefit from this is the question. And of course, uh, we're rooting for the farmers. Uh, you know, we've seen most of the inv investment though on the, um, on the input side, less so on the output side. Yeah, so I, that's a great place to start because there's a lot, lot to, lot to dive into there to to dissect some of that. Uh, for starters, though, I'd like to go back to you know talking about this idea of economic rent and how all of the innovation trying to disrupt the old way still relies on a business model that that takes a cut of of what the farmer theoretically could receive. Uh, is there a model out there, or or at least one theoretically that that would be more of a true partnership with the farmer? So, um, historically, there's a great book, uh, which I'm sure you read, Tim, called The Merchants of Grain. And it, yeah. it runs through the history of, of the, um, really on the output side, what's happened. And 
companies like Cargill, Bungie, and others realize that if they can control the supply chain on the output side, uh, that they could they could also control in some cases pricing, but also um, supply and demand. And that structure was started uh, to be set up in the 1800s. And then we saw it explode from about 1903 in, into the Great Depression and beyond the Great Depression when really Cargill expanded, aggressively started buying grain elevators. And so you have this entire structure in place that's been there for over 100 years that only benefits the output providers and benefits very few companies that are extremely closely held. Not a lot's known about them. Um, and some would argue they've had more influence uh, over world economic events and even some of the banks. And so how do you break that? Well, the, the, the challenge now is, is that um, even at the local level, so you know, you have farmers getting together and, 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 um, and families and, and investing in their own grain elevators and but that's still part of the old supply chain. And so the, the only way that we see them breaking this cycle of down, the downward spiral of economic rents that the farmers can charge is if they actually can go direct. And again, um, the models that are going to work are the ones where it's more of a partnership model. So technology companies and farms working together, and there is a lot that you can do to improve yield. So the average farmer makes about 120 important decisions, and those can all be informed by data. There are products out there that are organic and perform in some cases better than the um, genetically modified products or the ones that require heavy pesticide use. And so if you can partner with the right technology firm and then sell direct through some sort of a marketplace and bypass uh, the output providers, that can change the economic model. That requires the challenge and why it's taken so long for farmers to adopt this is that you're looking, depending on what they grow and sell, once or twice a year, they have an opportunity to do that. And the risk is so high that if they try something new, the farmer tries something new and it doesn't work, it could destroy their business. And so you see this reluctance to actually switch business model, even though the business model they're in is punishing them from, um, from being able to um, charge appropriate economic rents for what they're doing. And that sounds, you know, a, a lot of ways that kind of reflects Indigo, which I know is is one of the firms uh, or one of the investments your firm has made. Um, is is that kind of the, would that accurately describe their model and uh, take us back to when you decided to to make that investment? Oh, yeah. So it, it does. We, we've, well, we've known David Perry personally for a long time. Um, we were friends in San Francisco back when he founded Chemdex and he's, run several uh, multi-billion dollar companies. And um, he is a very special person. And for you know his own reasons, which I don't want to share, decided that um, he needed to change his um, lifestyle in terms of eating healthy and just became very passionate about um, others to eating healthy and understanding where our food's coming from and helped uh, essentially co-found Indigo with some scientists that uh, you know, their goal is to uh, feed the planet sustainably. And I mean, I can't think of a, there are a few better missions, but that's probably a top five mission of, that anyone can take on. And it started uh, more as a seed business. And what they realized is that uh, it was going to be very difficult to compete head on with the input providers. So we're at Monsanto, Dadupon, et cetera, and Syngenta. And they needed to add technology. And this, they, this was an insight several years ago and they built out an entire um, tech stack or, or, or layer that collects data and then has you decision, helps you decision better as a farmer. And so 
you know, the, the realization there was that they can't take this industry on doing, you know, competing in the old way, right? Selling seed and or buying, um, buying output as a grain trader. You had to flip the entire model. And so we watched them for several years. We bet very early on their, on their, um, on their partnership model and their marketplace. And we're, we're starting to see it work. It's, it's going to take time, but it's working to the tune of, um, you know, they're on hundreds of thousands of acres at this point. And so you, in order to disrupt this model, you're going to have to completely rechange the way the model works. And that's what we, as technology investors, we see this in other industries all the time. Ag is just one of the last that's been, uh, it's just been untouched by technology and that uh, they're very powerful and very strong constituents that will, um, you know, that are protecting their own economic rents. And so it's going to take a land swell and it's going to be from the, the farmers. They're the ones that are going to drive the change because they're just going to have to. They can't, they, they can't continue to be abused like this um, on both sides from the input and the output providers. And we had David uh, on the show back in episode 100. Actually, it's one of our more popular episodes. So if, if anybody listening hasn't uh, downloaded that one, check it out. Episode 100 with David Perry. Um, with that, so... You, you mentioned kind of partnership model and, and you kind of have to flip the game a little bit. So is the model that they set up the marketplace to facilitate the transaction between farmer and, and whoever's ultimately buying the commodity and then just take a, a cut of the transactions? Is that is that the difference in model? Correct. So the idea is to cut out the entire output uh, provider side, the entire, that entire supply chain that's been in place for hundreds of years. And so again, uh, not a challenge for the faint of heart, what the, the key to being able to do that is actually have, if you can certify your crop and it's organic and it's been tested and you can sell direct to the buyer. So for instance, the General Mills, uh, Procter & Gamble, um, Unilever, there's an entire group of companies that charge along the way percentage. Um, they take their pound of flesh that you can eliminate and actually more the profits somewhere between it, it's hard to tell just given how opaque this industry is, but we think between 15 and 40% can get back to the farmer directly. And so again, you know, the farmer's got to make a bet on this. And this is why the one, the larger farms can take part of their crop and test it and, you know, versus the old method. And so we're seeing a lot of that right now. The smaller farms can't, you know, they don't have the uh, capacity to do that. But that's where I think you know you're going to get most of your bang for your buck right now is is on the output side, and then slowly, uh, eventually, you know the input providers are going to come later because they they still have a very powerful hold on the, the distribution network, and that's that's a whole other story on the input side. Uh, why, from an investment standpoint, does this get you excited? Like you're talking about the reason why those SaaS models and other models exist is because you know they're high profitability and they can scale quickly, and you know obviously it would get an investor excited. Why, why something like this though, from an investment standpoint? Absolutely. So, just stepping back, when we when we look at a new investment, um, an act event, we we look for something for a few things. So we look for we call it data moats. And we want we want businesses that you know data is a new oil, and so the only way that you can apply the latest technology, machine learning, and AI is to actually have access to and or own the data. And so, but those data modes should be different than just having data. There should be network effects. So in terms of each customer you add, i.e., each farm or acre, you can get smarter and smarter uh, and make better decisions for your other customers. 
we also, you know, we, we like companies that do have some control over the data supply chain because, again, it allows you to make better decisions. And so when we looked at the landscape of technology uh, that was um, being built up around agriculture, and we looked at about everything. There's probably 150 companies in the U.S. and Europe that matter. And what we realized is that going back to your point about SaaS or business model, right? So business model ostensibly is how are you charging for this product? There is no way farmers are going to pay a hundred or two hundred thousand a year for a bunch of sensors and some software without at least being able to try it for free and or have some sort of different partnership model. And so what we see across the board, I don't want to name names, but basically every single company and couldn't get over that kind of ten million of revenue mark, which is you know that's like nothing when you look at Monsanto or or a Bungie. And it was because they were selling mostly to the higher margin farmers. So, you know, walnuts, pecans, um, or people that could afford it, which are very few in the U.S. And we had this aha moment where we said, look, like the old model of selling software to enterprises that we use across other industries isn't going to work in ag. It's just not going to work. And so when Indigo developed, you know, more of the partnership model and then developed the um, uh, marketplace model, we knew that that, that was... Um, that was a path that would actually work where the farmer then could deploy technology, deploy, you know, a better seed that's not from the traditional input providers. Um, and then, you know, both parties benefit and the farmer becomes more profitable. Uh, and, it, you know, that was, it, that sparked, you know, we looked at now, we're, we've sort of shifted to looking at other businesses like Benson Hill and ones that have more of a partnership model, which are driving, basically driving better product to the end consumer. And ultimately, it's going to be the consumer. The farmers are going to have to adopt this, but the consumer is going to drive this. And when they wake up to the fact that we're putting food in our bodies that comes from you know, 2,000 miles away and probably genetically modified in pesticides that are being used that are destroying the environment and lowering nitrogen levels in soil, et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, I think the consumers will demand it. So we're already seeing that. Um, but it's just, this is going to be a 10 or 20 year process to undo what's been put in place over the last 150 to 200 years. Right. And uh, so did you find like Indigo and Benson Hill uh, out of this investment criteria? Um, or did you kind of uh, have a desire to get into ag tech and then, and then within ag tech, you know, find investments that, that, that met your criteria? Um, that's a, that's a good question. And I'm, I'm not sure because it was so long ago. We started looking at ag tech four or five years ago. I think the two reasons that we started looking at ag tech is there was a study done by, um, I believe McKinsey talked about technology innovation and big industry. And we do, we mostly invest in large industry and agriculture was at the bottom of the, of the largest 16 industries in the United States. So that was one reason. The other going back to data modes and network effects that I talked about is that Farming is basically a dirty data problem, no pun intended, right? There are just, you're making decisions and you can make them based on data. And a lot of those decisions are made using old methods like gut and almanac and what your neighbors do. But if you, if you actually, um, you know, put sensors out in the field, you can make better and better decisions based on anything that is available today. And so um, those are, that was your original thesis was we're going to invest in an IoT, Internet of Things business, that collects data and helps make farmers make better decisions so they can then go, you know, try to capture, recapture some of the economic rent from the output and input providers. And we found very quickly that that just wasn't going to work. And so we had to modify our thinking. And of course, we, we met companies like Indigo and Benson Hill that, um, that just had a completely different business model. And so 
you know, we're still looking for businesses with those, with those unique business models. Um, there aren't many. And to do that, it requires a lot of capital. Uh, it requires a lot of working capital. And that's why these companies have raised hundreds of millions of dollars because it, again, they're trying to compete with, you know, 50 to a hundred billion dollar companies like Cargill, Bungie, et cetera. And so, you know, as we look at the investment landscape evolve in ag, there aren't, there's, there's not going to be some sort of breakthrough miraculous technology um, from the IoT side, we are seeing new and interesting things from the CRISPR side. So actually gene editing um, and, you know, even down to companies that are trying to edit in a microclimate. So based on elevation and where you're located, provide you with a very specific seed, you know, but that goes back to competing directly with the input for providers. And so they're going to need to devise their own business model to sell seeds um, and compete with Monsanto or Syngenta. So, you know, I think, um, you know, the market right now, given where we're seeing volatility in the overall stock market and in hard sectors where it just takes a long time, investors do tend to pull away. And so, you know, who knows what will happen in 19, but I suspect that ag tech was pretty hot in 18 and in 17. And we saw big investment numbers, something like 10 billion invested across almost a thousand deals and I think that was in 2017. I haven't seen the 18 numbers yet, but I bet they're bigger than 17. And uh, if I was forced to predict, I think that we'll see a slowdown in investment in ag tech, which is, it's it's okay. It's good because I think investors are going to recalibrate towards the business models that actually are, are, are bringing more of a partnership model uh, versus just selling things directly. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, if I'm understanding you correctly, what, what you're saying is, um, that a, a vast majority of these uh, investments, you know, like you mentioned, the ones that couldn't get over the $10 million mark, maybe don't fit the, the venture capital model. It's not that they're bad businesses, but maybe they just don't fit the venture capital model. And maybe, you know, in, in, in these partnership type arrangements are, are more of, of where the real opportunity is, which, which it wouldn't be surprising then that we might see a downtick in, in venture capital investment. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. That, yeah. And I think when I say partnership model, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing words, but we're talking business model. So how, how are they charging? And again, to be able to charge and um, we're, we're charging a percent of revenue, a percent of yield increase, or, you know, charging through your marketplace, that requires a lot of capital. And so it's not just venture capitalists that can support this, but it's going to be larger firms like ours, like growth equity and, and much larger players that um, will support these new models. Uh, and then, you know, you've got things like uh, Plenty and others that are in farm that are trying to build, um, you know, bring farming closer to cities. And there's certain, you know, problems and issues with that business model as well. And what those really are just more logistics businesses. How can you package up a salad and get it to someone in a couple hours? And so we're going to see on the margin, a lot of change, but it's going to be really the central driving force. Isn't it's not, you know, farmer profitability is important, but it's going to be the consumer pulling or demanding uh, more information about what they're putting in their body. And I just, I think that, we're probably going to take more of a pause in 19. Um, and I, I'm not speaking directly about our firm, but just generally investors and ag tech as we reorient towards what's going to drive um, the best bang for the buck for the consumer and then sort of work backwards from there into the enterprise. And we call that in our parlance B to B to C. So selling technology to businesses that then, you know, touch consumers and using that whole data chain to then make better decisions. I think that's where, it's going to get more interesting and that'll probably happen later 19 and 2020 and 
um, you know, obviously over the next decade. Very interesting. Yeah, you mentioned plenty. We had uh, really early on in this podcast, we had Dr. Nate's story from Bright Agritech on that was acquired by Plenty. And then just recently in episode 129, we had uh, Irving Thane on from Bowery Farming in New York City talking about exactly the model, logistics model of kind of delivering local fresh produce. But yeah, I, I agree. We're kind of talking two different things here um, between something like that and more, more kind of disrupting more of the traditional uh, commodity-based agriculture supply chains uh, in the ways that a company like Indigo is doing. I want to switch gears just a little bit to, to uh, try to cater towards those listening that that are entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial, and want just want to kind of understand more about the investment process. Um, can you can you kind of describe sort of at a high level end to end how your investment process works from uh, kind of discovering a deal to actually making an investment? Sure. Uh, so we you know, we are a thesis first shop. So what we do is we'll spend like in agriculture, we'll spend a couple years understanding the thesis or theme. And to do that, we actually spend a lot of time with, um, with people that buy technology in that, in that segment. So in ag, for instance, we have spent time with the, the large input providers and the large output providers to understand the technology they're using and some of the larger farms in the, in the United States and in, um, in South America and understand what the pain points are. And, and then we use that to then identify assets that we think solve those pain points. And it's hard to tell in the early days um, who's doing a good job and who isn't. And so what we do is we've built a, a, a system that essentially scrapes pretty much every piece of information available from a patent filing to your website to job openings and understand what companies are attempting to solve a particular pain point. And then we just try to meet with them. And when we meet with them, we're evaluating, um, you know, three primary things. So one is the team. Um, two is is the product. We have a heavy product lens. So we, is this the best product or not? And I'll come back to that in a second. And then three is just the, the moat, the data moat that they have and they're building. And what we found um, over investing, you know, in the past 20 years is that if you have a great team, the next most important thing is the product. And in the old days of investing, um, product was important, but it wasn't as important. Today, it's critically important because there's no more friction in the market, meaning the best products rise to the top very fast. So if you were to buy you know, some sort of new product for, um, for Tim, your business, for doing better podcasts or what have you, you could Google around, you'd find the 10 best solutions, you demo them and you pick the best one. And you don't care anymore if it's located in LA, Boston, or Helsinki. Mm-hmm. And so as investors, you know, we're less concerned about where that business or product is located. We're very, very uh, concerned and critical of, of the product itself. And so once we find what we think is a promised land or the, or the group that can solve a um, particular pain point, then we actually make introductions to the buyers of that technology and, and see if there's a fit. And it's, it's basically referencing for us, right? So we, we understand, you know, what is our propensity to buy? What do they think of the product? And then from an investment standpoint, people always you know, it's got to hurt a little on both sides, meaning when we invested a valuation, you know, the the company always wants a higher valuation and we always want a lower valuation. And so if it hurts a little for both of us, I think we know we're in the right spot. And, um, you know, the process itself takes, it's like two, usually two, three months, but we do a lot of diligence and then we go to what we call our phase one, phase two, and phase three. And this is typical of most investment shops is you go to an investment committee and discuss the, the thesis and then the risks and mitigants around it. And it's, it's really, that's a fun part of the process for us. 
and a little scary because it can be very opaque for entrepreneurs, but you need to, the entrepreneurs that do very well through, you know, our process are ones that are extremely transparent and no business is perfect. They all have imperfections. Uh, part of our job is to help with those imperfections, particularly around things like pricing and go to market and building an engineering team. And so we like, we like teams that are transparent with what their problems are and transparent with what, what's going well. And, um, it makes it a lot easier to work together because, you know, these, these investments tend to last longer than the average marriage in the United States. And so, um, there needs to be a lot of trust on both sides. And I think that, it's, it's one of those things, if you're an entrepreneur, you know it when you see it, when you found the right partner. It's going to be a group that you believe in and think will be there for the long term and, you know, isn't going to necessarily meddle in what you're trying to accomplish, but will be there to support and help when you need it. And the best way to determine um, if they will do that after close, right, because you have the honeymoon period um, up until you close and then a couple months after is talk to other CEOs that they've invested with. I think that's the best way to reference um, uh, investors, particularly if there's you know CEOs in your in your sector or in your market segment. Mm-hmm. Um, the fun part is, uh, of course, after the investment, people want to congratulate everybody, but that's just the st- that's the start <laughs> of the relationship. You gotta do it, yeah. And then I, we've never had a business that's up and to the right. We sold one for one and a half billion, and it went four months before it sold. It went technically bankrupt, and we had to put more money in it. Mm-hmm. And it's just the ups and downs. Um, it's uh, you, you learn to, to meditate and take breaths uh, through, <laughs> through those ups and downs as an investor. And as an entrepreneur too, it's a lonely, it's a very lonely job. It's, it's hard. Um, entrepreneur depression is now something that, um, you know, venture firms are trying to understand because it's much higher in average than, um, than most other professions. And you can't always share everything with everybody, right? Like there's just some things that maybe you can only talk to your investor about or your board or, or, or spouse or significant other. And, uh, and so having that right partner that's going to be there for long term is really important. Right. I bet a lot of, uh, you know, within the same week, you're going to think we're going to be a, a billion dollar company and we're going to be bankrupt and you can't really, you, you got to sort of come across even keeled somewhere in between. <laughs> uh, uh, so you just got to stay calm, right? That's, uh, and that's, uh, as an investor, that's what you learn after doing this for a long time. And you all are, you said growth equity. So we, would you categorize that as kind of later stage startup? I mean, after seed stage, so later stage startup investment or how, how, what's the right terminology there? Correct. So after we're not doing the seed or the, the very early round, we come in in the later rounds. So the business model is a little bit more proven. There is some revenue and there is a gap in the market. You know, so we're doing kind of between 20 and 75 million and come and really support that growth and, um, and basically taking what is an entrepreneurial business and working with them to build an at scale enterprise. Gotcha. Well, walk us through a little bit more detail on the, on the management team uh, side of things. I know like we've talked about David Perry at Indigo here. If I remember right, he started in energy and then went to healthcare. And then this was kind of his re-entry into, into ag. So it, it, maybe it's not, you know, at least with the founder or the CEO, as much as domain industry experience as it is just uh, entrepreneurial experience or is he a unique uh, situation? Well, he's a unique person and he, he was in energy and actually chemicals um, and it was a chemical based marketplace. And so a lot of those obviously were sold in the ag market. And I think that was um, very early how his exposure to ag and, and then it came around to biotech, which is relevant because they're developing, you know, they're using the, the microbiome to develop more robust seeds without genetically modifying or using pesticides. And, and so 
it kind of came full circle for him. I think I mean, we have our youngest entrepreneur is 25. Our oldest is almost 60. And we have everything in between. And it, it's hard to categorize any single entrepreneur that's successful. I think, you know, I think that, um, and this is becoming more prevalent now just in, um, in books is, it's really about just being able to continually walk through brick walls and, and have the grit to get up every day and deal with things that are very, very difficult, you know, getting close to not making payroll, um, you know, getting in a patent dispute, uh, you know, having an issue with a customer and these things come up all the time and it feels like you're constantly, you know, putting out fires at the same time you're trying to build a business and remain optimistic and, it's, it's a hard job, but I think the, one, the entrepreneurs that we see that are very successful are just super passionate about what they're trying to accomplish. And then um, they, they just get every day, <laughs> they get up every day and keep going. And it's, uh, it, there's no f- formula. So I think, you know, this is hard to, you can't quantify this, but people, entrepreneurs here know a lot and you just got to be willing to hear no a lot and accept that what you think you're doing is right and is going to work regardless of what investors say and, and everyone else says. Cause when you're finding an investor, it, it is a numbers game. You know, you should be meeting with 20, 30, 40, 50 of them um, to, to get the right match. And you're going to hear, you know, 95% of those will be no's. Um, even for repeat entrepreneurs, it's, it's not always a slam dunk. And so yeah, you got to have um, real conviction around what you're doing and then just not give up. Um, you know, at, at the later stage, I think the really good ones are, do do a great job around being process oriented. So, for instance, when you ask about like, okay, tell us your marketing plan. You know, they produce a document. All right, what is your pricing plan? There's a document. So, they they do learn to become much more process oriented. Which whether their process is perfect doesn't matter. At least there is a process, and you can take that and improve it. Right. And we've seen that pretty consistently with the later stage CEOs. And then over time, too, you know. We encourage them to get coaches and you know become more polished because a lot of being a CEO of a larger business is is selling and and being able to communicate with your customers, your employees, and your shareholders. We, we've started doing this little mini segment in the shows because I'm getting uh, successful people on here like yourself, and would love to just get you to share one piece of advice, either in personal productivity or in building teams. We're just calling it our manager minute. Could you just share one piece of advice along those lines? Sure. So team building is something that that we're we're super passionate about, and I think um, there are two two things on team building. Is one, what are the attributes that are important for success for your business? So for us, it's things like people that are idea oriented, team oriented, have a high sense of urgency, high ego strength, but low ego. Um, and obviously are very brilliant and we can test for those things. You can actually test for them, not only in a written test, but, um, case studies as well. And so we're very formulaic about how we interview and we use tests and we use case studies. The other um, piece of advice is don't spend more time with somebody on your first day of work than you did interviewing them as a firm. So, you know, look, some people are, you got to hire a thousand people because you're going like crazy. But if you're a smaller firm, we like to spend time with them in the office, outside of the office, meet significant others. I can actually show you a lot and, um, you know, meet over dinner in different environments. And I think that um, you, you just learn a lot more. And then the best people are the ones that um, when the way they talk about how they work, it's we, and there's a lot more team orientation around their language versus I. Mm. And, uh, and we really pay attention to that. And so um, 
you know, it's a little easier for us because we are, this is a tight team oriented sort of business uh, investing. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. That's, that's great. Uh, one last question here. I always like to end by asking something about the future of agriculture because this is um, the name of our show here, but what's, what's one big problem in ag that you see that you would love to see just an exciting startup sort of tackle? I think, so I want to go back to the, what is the biggest issue in the U.S. right now in terms of ag um, outside of the farmer profitability issue? I think it's us understanding what we're putting in our bodies. And so a business that can instrument a supply chain to know exactly if, you, if you're eating cereal, where did that grain come from? If you eat a tomato, where did that tomato come from? And what was its path to get to you? And actually having that data, I think... People will be shocked when they know where the things are grown, how they're grown, what pesticides are used, and then how they got to their their store. That is coming. We're a ways away from it, but the the, the company that can salt and crack that nut, so to speak, is going to do extremely well. Because imagine, imagine then how that reshapes how the CPG uh, industry works, how the supply chain and logistics industry works, and then, of course, how the agriculture industry is going to respond to that. Uh, it, that will shake multiple industries at once, and it, 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 it's coming because consumers want that. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been really, really interesting. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. I hope you found that as fascinating as I did. I'm going to do some more profiles this year, specifically on investors, because as I got to thinking about the gap, as we always call it, from ag tech to producer to other people in the supply chain, I got to think about, you know, maybe the biggest gap or the biggest sort of mystery is understanding the investment money. And so if people are putting millions of dollars into billions of dollars, in some cases, into ag and ag tech, what are, what are they expecting to get out of it? What result? What return? And I think that's a fascinating question to be exploring more on this show. If you have any ideas for uh, people, companies, or ideas that are, are going to be related to the future of agriculture and belong on the show, feel free to hit me up anytime on Twitter at Tim Hamrich. Thank you so much. And we'll be back next week. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey.